This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the use of race as a factor in college admissions. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Harvard University, along with the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, were sued by Students for Fair Admissions, a nonprofit organization against racial classifications in college admissions. The court's conservative majority overturned admissions plans at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, which are America's oldest private and public colleges, respectively. In both cases, all six conservative justices voted to reverse decades of precedent, supporting affirmative action in college admissions, a policy that benefited otherwise disadvantaged students from racial or ethnic minority groups. Race-conscious admissions in the United States were born from the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and affirmative action policy has shaped U.S. higher education as we know it, per Genevieve Carlton, writing for bestcolleges.com. In the late 1960s, admissions departments around the country began considering race as a factor when admitting new students. A board member of Coalition for a Diverse Harvard, Michael Williams, told VOA correspondent Matt Haynes that, quote, Unfortunately, race still matters in our society, and affirmative action is essential in guaranteeing that everyone, not just the advantaged, benefit from an education that can serve as a pathway to upward mobility. Opponents of race-conscious admissions policies cheered the ruling. A 20-year-old San Diego entrepreneur, Willow Hannington, believes the decision to strike down affirmative action is a positive one for the country. She told VOA's Matt Haynes, quote, this nation has achieved significant progress, and in my opinion, race should no longer play a decisive role in any aspect of our lives, unquote. Justice Clarence Thomas, the nation's second black justice, who had long called for an end to affirmative action, wrote a caustic, separate concurring opinion, quote, the decision sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, rudderless, race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes, close quote. Well, for more on this Supreme Court decision to strike down the use of race as a factor in university admissions, we turn to two distinguished analysts. Zach Smith is a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program at the Heritage Foundation, and that's a conservative think tank here in Washington, and Elise Body, She is the James V. Campbell Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, and both panelists join me via Zoom. Welcome to the program. So let's start with the pros and cons of the decision from our guest, Zach Smith. Let me begin with you. May I assume that you are in favor of the ruling? I am. I think it's an encouraging ruling. I think it gets back to the roots of what our Constitution, particularly in light of the 14th Amendment, is intended to be. It's a colorblind Constitution. And so this idea that somehow you can have good discrimination is just utterly absurd. I think it didn't have a good precedent in our law. And so I'm very encouraged to see that the Supreme Court stepped back and reaffirmed those basic principles, which I thought we had all agreed on so long ago, that everyone, regardless of their skin color or race or ethnicity, should all be treated equally under the law. Let me now turn to Professor Elise Body. Professor Body, I assume you are against this decision, and I would like your reaction to it in response to Zach Smith's reference to the so-called colorblind constitution and the 14th amendment. 
Sure. Thank you for having me. So not surprisingly, I disagree very strongly with Mr. Smith. And I think Justice Jackson said it all. Our country has never been colorblind. The purpose of the 14th Amendment, in fact, was to remedy discrimination against Black Americans. And what we've seen throughout our country's history is systematic disadvantage that is heaped upon Black Americans and other people of color. And so in order for us to get past that very damaging period of our history that continues into the present, it's important for us to create opportunities for all people to attend institutions of higher education and also to learn from each other in the course of participating in classrooms and participating in extracurricular activities in a university environment. So I think the decision was highly unfortunate and a significant step back for our country. Turning back to you, Zach Smith, I want to go back just for a second and remind ourselves, even though I spoke about it in the introduction, as to why affirmative action programs in the wake of civil rights legislation were enacted in the first place. They were implemented to address, as Professor Boddy was saying, longstanding exclusion and segregation of minority students, particularly African-Americans in higher education, and to recognize the persistent inequalities that these students faced at colleges and in the workplace. Let's underscore as well for our audience that this isn't a preferential factor. Race is considered as one among many other factors, all things being equal. That is, a person's race would be considered to enhance diversity and give those individuals who had heretofore been marginalized a chance at colleges, particularly those elite colleges that would normally have excluded them. So, Zach, having said that, are you saying then that students of color no longer really face these persistent inequalities, both at the individual and systemic level, particularly in higher education? Well, respectfully, I don't believe your characterization of affirmative action, how it works in practice, particularly how it worked in practice with respect to what Harvard and UNC and other elite universities are doing, that doesn't reflect the reality on the ground, and it doesn't reflect the factual record that was presented to the court in this case. In fact, in most instances at Harvard and UNC, race was the determinative factor uh, for many applicants and whether or not they would be admitted. And in fact, statistics showed that Asian American applicants were disproportionately discriminated against because of their race, and in fact, were treated less favorably because of the fact they were Asian Americans. You know, it also underscores another factor from a practical perspective that many of the beneficiaries of affirmative action today were not in fact discriminated against themselves personally, and in fact, their family members or their ancestors were not those who were discriminated against because of the past injustices of slavery slavery and racial discrimination, which we all agree today were abhorrent and should never, frankly, have happened. But, you know, I encourage everyone to go read Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. It's a very powerful opinion. It responds directly to some of the claims that Justice Jackson made in her dissenting opinion that the professor referenced. And it really provides a thorough originalist defense for the colorblind constitution. The idea that the 14th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, those other post-Civil War amendments were passed to the U.S. Constitution to really ensure that everyone is treated equally regardless of their race or ethnicity or other protected characteristics. Professor Boddy, I would like you to respond to what Zach Smith said about affirmative action in practice, particularly with respect to these cases. And as well, I would make mention of Justice Thomas, 
who has always been hostile to affirmative action. And yet some critics, writers say that he is arguably the greatest ever beneficiary of these programs and their ethos. So I thought that was important to mention, but let me get you to respond. Once again, I think it's very important to recognize the strong educational benefits that are realized from having people of different life experiences, different perspectives, engage with one another in a classroom environment, in a university environment. And affirmative action has helped to equalize opportunities, especially for Black and Latino students, which the court has argued is unfair to white students who, before affirmative action, had a virtual monopoly on access to higher education. So I think it's important, again, to realize that this has created essential opportunities for students of color, but also for white students in the sense that everyone has the chance to come together and learn together. As to your point about Justice Thomas, the record speaks for itself. I think in that regard, many of us understand the history of his appointment. And it's unfortunate that Justice Thomas has turned its back on affirmative action. But that being said, I think it's undeniable that when people have the chance again to come together, to learn from one another, it's extremely beneficial to our country. It also helps to prepare students to enter an increasingly diverse workforce and society. So again, I think the court decision was a significant loss for this country. Professor Buddy, yeah, I, I yeah, I wanted to ask Professor Buddy, but maybe I'm going to be speaking on your behalf. But I, I wanted you to respond directly to Zach Smith's assertion that Asian Americans were literally discriminated against with respect to this decision. And Zach Smith, did you have any other question that you wanted to raise or response? Well, I did. I wanted to make just a few quick points in response, if I could, with respect to Justice Clarence Thomas. Look, I think anyone who is familiar with Justice Thomas's life story, anyone who has read his autobiography or watched a very powerful documentary where he talks about his life, one of the things he mentions and takes issue with affirmative action is that so many people thought he achieved uh, his accomplishments because of affirmative action, not because of his own merit or efforts. And that's one of the things that not only frustrates Justice Thomas, but so many other high-achieving, high-performing individuals throughout society. It undermines their own individualized accomplishments. The other second point I'd make quickly, you know, unfortunately, many of the arguments that Harvard and UNC and other schools are advancing in this litigation really echo back to an earlier, darker era when they were taking efforts to prohibit Jewish students from attending Harvard and other elite academic institutions. And to see those same types of arguments being made today is very troubling and very disheartening. And then third and finally, as to the educational benefit, that's something the court explicitly considered in previous cases. It also addressed it again in these cases, the Harvard and UNC cases. But keep in mind, any time that the classifications based on race are being put forward, they have to pass something called strict scrutiny. It's very searching review by the court. There has to be a very compelling reason for the government to take this race-based action, and it has to be narrowly tailored. It has to be closely designed to remedy a specific problem. And what the court said here is that that educational benefit that the professor mentioned just could not pass that very searching strict scrutiny review. Okay, so let me get you to respond to that, Professor Boddy, and maybe my question as well, because looking at, as I said, the impact in practice, as well as to what extent has race been not just one factor, as I mentioned, but maybe the determinative 
factor. And if that's the case, is that really fair? Just to the point about Clarence Thomas, first of all, I just want to be clear that I don't oppose to the extent that Clarence Thomas's nomination and confirmation was the product of affirmative action. I don't oppose Clarence Thomas's appointment on those grounds. I think his record on this issue speaks for itself negatively, but I didn't mean to put his qualifications as a justice into question. With respect to the point that you had raised earlier about Asian Americans, first of all, it's absolutely clear that Asian Americans have suffered from racial discrimination. I will say, however, it's curious that the majority opinion, at least to my reading, does not mention discrimination against Asian Americans. And also, I think it's remarkable that there are so many Asian American organizations that signed on to briefs in favor of Harvard's admissions policy in the Harvard case and supported the use of affirmative action in the UNC cases as well. I believe there were 44 some odd organizations that signed on to those briefs. So I think it's important not to misrepresent, of course, how Asian Americans have proceeded in this case. I think it's important to recognize that Asian Americans benefit from affirmative action and supported affirmative action. I also think it's curious that the person who brought this case, Ed Blum, at trial did not produce a single Asian American at trial to testify in this case, which is also certainly odd. Carol, I want to make sure that I addressed your other questions as well. If I'm missing it, if you could please repeat it. I think just one quick one, and this would be on behalf of Zach, but it struck me that he said that race was not just one factor, but the determinant factor in decisions, admissions decisions at Harvard and maybe at the University of North Carolina. And I was wondering if you see it that way as well. Did I mischaracterize the way affirmative action is used, which is all things being equal, that Black students, other minorities need to meet minimal qualifications, and only then would race be considered and not necessarily, you know, the determinative factor? Race has been one consideration of many different factors that is used in affirmative action programs, both at Harvard UNC and around the country. Whether it's a determinative factor, I can't speak to specifically, but I would say that for purposes of the court's decisions, the important point to take away is that race continues to be a relevant consideration in affirmative action. It continues to operate very significantly throughout society. That is an unfortunate fact that race continues used to be something that affects one's life opportunities, one's educational opportunities. And so to the extent that Harvard or UNC or other universities are considering race, that is a highly valid and relevant consideration to take into account in order to ultimately make our country more fair and just. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are Zach Smith. He's legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and appellate advocacy programs at the Heritage Foundation and Elise Body. She's the James V. Campbell Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, from whom you just heard. We are discussing the pros and cons of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to strike down the use of affirmative action in college admissions. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also download the show at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to Mohammed Sharif. He's a Facebook follower from Monrovia, Liberia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. 
Well, back to you, Zach Smith. And here's a question. Diversity is a word that comes up a lot, you know, in this conversation. And the decision by the Supreme Court seems to presuppose that diversity maybe is not that important. And yet, without race being considered as one of many factors, most analysts have concluded that the long-term effect on higher education of this ruling would be that there would be less diversity in higher education. So the question to you, Zach, is that do you think diversity is an, is an important factor in higher education? Well, I think it depends on how you define diversity. And unfortunately, what this case deals with, what Harvard, UNC, other institutions of higher education have been focused on, is a superficial diversity based on race or ethnicity or one of these other factors that should not define who we are as individuals. What's lost in the shuffle so often are other diversities, uh, diversity of thought, diversity of life experience. But again, what our constitution and what our laws prohibit is being treated differently because of our race. And unfortunately, that's what Harvard, UNC, and other higher institutions of learning have done for many, many years, is they have group students by their race, treated them differently because of their race. And that is just not acceptable for us as a country today. So over to you, Professor Body, for your response to what Zach Smith just said, and to what extent you think that a diverse student body, which is one of the reasons why many universities consider race as one among many factors in college admissions, to diversify the student body, which they see as a great value for the learning environment and for future employment opportunities. Well, I I think I've already said that I believe race is a critical component of the diversity rationale that until the court's decision, the court had approved the use of race because of the education benefits of diversity. And I think I've already spoken to that. But let me just respond directly to Zach and to your question as well, Carol. I think one could assume that it would be wonderful to get to a world where race no longer mattered. I've spent a good portion of my career trying to work on cases that would help us achieve that result. But the fact of the matter is that race in the real world still matters. It matters for housing opportunity. It matters for educational opportunity in K-12. It matters in employment. It matters in the criminal justice system. Virtually every facet of our society is affected by considerations of race. And that's not because that's the way that it should be, but because that's the way that it is. And so the question that we have to grapple with is whether we will allow our institutions of higher education to take race into account in order to address these longstanding inequities and inequality that is so deeply grounded, and whether we're going to allow institutions to adopt that objective. And if we're saying that universities cannot adopt that objective, what does it say for the future of our society? Our constitution is not colorblind. Our constitution has been color conscious in multiple ways throughout our history. And so I think it's important for us to really grapple very seriously with what Mr. Smith's interpretation would mean for the broader society were we to fully embrace it. Zach Smith, how will society benefit from this decision in your view? Well, look, you know, I respectfully disagree with the professor's position that our constitution is not colorblind. In fact, I think when the Supreme Court and other justices and judges in our history have interpreted the constitution mistakenly to not be colorblind, that's given us some of our worst decisions in our nation's history. The Dred Scott decision, which declared that 
slaves or not people, freed blacks, were not citizens within the meaning of the Constitution. It gave us Plessy versus Ferguson, which gave us the terrible doctrine of separate but equal. And when we moved away from a color-conscious Constitution back to the original meaning of the Constitution as a colorblind document where everyone is to be treated equally, that's when we started seeing better decisions coming out of the court that were more in line with the original meaning, the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, those other post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution, which really were designed to implement this colorblind idea into our Constitution. And so as a practical matter, I think it's a very good thing where people will be treated equally, regardless of their race or their ethnicity, and where people will be judged based on their merit alone, which I think is something that is pretty uncontroversial to the vast majority of Americans today. Many analysts are saying that the result of this decision will be a much less diverse student body and that this will have an impact, obviously, on the workplace. But what you're saying is, no, that's fine. Well, I think it depends on how you define diversity. I think, unfortunately, many are defining diversity on a superficial level based on someone's race or ethnicity. And there are many more aspects to diversity to consider, diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, diversity of life experience. All of those things have unfortunately taken a backseat in many of the admissions processes in higher education today. And so I think it's undisputed in the record that Asian American students, for instance, found it almost insurmountable to be admitted to Harvard based on their test scores, their GPA, and in fact, were not given the same types of preferences that other minority students were given. And so this idea that somehow Asian Americans or any student should be discriminated against based on their race alone, that's something that's anathema to us as a society and something that is anathema to our Constitution. Certainly after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, we had horrific segregation policies with the Jim Crow and so much that set back African-Americans in particular in this country so much to rectify. Let me turn now to Professor Boddy and to what extent you think this decision can be mitigated. Supposedly, Chief Justice Roberts left open a space for the use of race through the application process. Does that in any way mitigate the decision, Professor? Or what else can universities do to mitigate the impact of this decision in terms of aggressive recruitment among minority populations? Or how do you see it? Well, as far as the Chief Justice's acknowledgement of the possibility of using race in the admissions process, I think it remains to be seen how that will play out. I do want to just sort of speak again to the historical record. I think it's important to make sure that the audience is clear about what I will refer to as the math of affirmative action. So if, if we look to the point that Mr. Smith made earlier, if we look at the history of disfranchisement, the history of subjugation, the history of discrimination against Black people, as well as other racial groups, of course, including Asian Americans, what we'll see is that when you add it all up, we have about two generations of affirmative action, if you count the Bakke decision and the Bruder and Fisher decisions, and 11 generations of enslavement and subjugation of Black people in particular, but that would also sweep in other racial groups. And so I think when we're talking about affirmative action, there is this tendency by the other side to conflate 
the considerations of race for beneficial purposes versus the considerations of race in order to subjugate people. And Mr. Smith has suggested that there's really no way to distinguish between the two. But as I think it was Justice Stevens who said at one point that uh, we can tell the difference between a welcome mat and a no trespass sign. The purpose of affirmative action in today's context has been to open up opportunities for people of color who have been excluded by institutions, by universities, in so many different realms throughout American society. And so the idea that affirmative action is somehow harmful, as Mr. Smith suggests, I think is an intolerable proposition because in its fullest extent is intended to provide the benefits that many white applicants enjoy as a matter of course. So I think we have to be honest about what this is. I do understand Mr. Smith's position and I understand that he has a view of the Constitution, but I just don't think that it has any bearing on reality and the ways in which our country continues to operate. Well, I'm afraid on that note, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. And certainly we will be tracking the consequences of this ruling in the many months and years ahead. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program at the Heritage Foundation and Elise Body, the James V. Campbell Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.